Okay, well, it's very good to uh, be here to be able to join with you uh, this afternoon and to look at this weird question Does God believe in capitalism? I think it's a very important topic, and I'm going to begin with some quotes and statistics rather that speak about the needs of the world and then some quotes about the character of capitalism. Almost one billion people live in the world without enough to eat each day. In sub-Saharan Africa, the average daily calorie intake, according to uh, Indur Goklani, I'll introduce him a little later on in more detail, uh, is barely the minimum daily energy requirement. In addition, several billion people will receive enough calories, but not enough nutrients. Uh, infant mortality in developing countries, according to the UN Population Division, is still between 60 and 100 per 1,000 live births. Okay, between 6 and 10% of all babies born die under one year of age, compared to 2 to 5 per 1,000 live births in developing, developed countries. In the last 50 years, almost 400 million people worldwide have died from hunger and poor sanitation. Uh, more than three times the number who've died from war. These are just some of the measures of the desperate needs of the world at the moment and nothing that anyone can say can reduce the horror of those needs. In light of the massive inequalities that are depicted in these statistics, listen to some quotes about the nature and character of capitalism and the role it plays in establishing and preserving those inequalities. Paul Tillich. The effect of the capitalist system upon society and upon every individual it takes uh, and upon every individualism it takes the form of possession. That is, of being possessed. Its character is demonic. Now, St. Augustine, from those things that God gave you, take what you need, but the rest to which, which to you are superfluous, unnecessary to others, the superfluous goods of the rich are necessary to the poor, and when you possess the superfluous, you possess what is not yours. Uh, philosopher Alasdair MacIntyre, so it is not after all just human sinfulness that generates particular individual acts of injustice over and above the institutional injustice of capitalism itself. Capitalism also provides systematic incentives to develop a type of character that has a propensity to injustice. Or Stanley Hauerwas, American commentator, capitalism has produced great wealth, but capitalism's inability to do so is irrelevant as rebuttal to the essentially injustice nat unjust nature of capitalism. Or Ronald Sider, author of an immensely popular book, North Americans and Europeans, including presumably Australians, earn 61 times as much as the people in poor countries, but we give only a tiny fraction of our affluence away. Can we claim to be obeying the biblical command to have a special concern for the poor and the oppressed? If the Bible is true, can we seriously hope to experience eternal love rather than eternal separation from the God of the poor? These quotes from theologians, philosophers and social commentators sum up what I'd like to say about whether God believes in capitalism. The answer is a thunderous no. What is both on the surface and is implied by these quotes is that capitalism is a system of economic activity that relentlessly exploits the poor for the advantage of the rich so that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. In fact, the rich get richer by making the poor poorer. That is the diagnosis. The response, of course, is clear. Generosity instead of greed. Moderation instead of excess. Simplicity instead of luxury. That is the talk I would like to give. 
it's in line with these quotes and using those statistics, I suspect that for many of you, it's the talk that you would like me to give. It's what you already believe at a gut level about capitalism. And if I can give you a few facts and figures to bolster that view, then all well and good. I say it's the talk that I'd like to give, but it's not the talk I'm going to give. I'm not going to give it because I don't believe it to be true anymore. I used to. I was a paid-up, card-carrying, anti-capitalist once. I believed in the socialisation of capital and the greed inherent in capitalism. I used to believe those things, but I don't believe them anymore. And so I'm going to give you a talk, which I suspect for many of you that you won't like. It's one when I, when I sat in lecture theatres like this, although not as fancy as this one, uh, I wouldn't have liked but I now believe the evidence is simply too overwhelming to give that other sort of talk. And in this, I'm not on my own. I'm going to be making reference to a growing body of literature from a highly impressive array of authors along the way. And my plan of attack is as follows. After summarising first-year economics in five minutes, I'll say a few things about the growth and emergence of capitalism historically, uh, particularly over the last two centuries, and then a few things about the results of capitalism and especially the uh, recent phenomenon of global capitalism this last half century. My second point will be to try and tease open the intellectual and institutional structure of capitalism and that will be the hardest part. You'll need to concentrate and work hard at that point. It requires real intellectual and imaginative work from all of us. And then uh, that will enable us to come to terms with this slightly tongue-in-cheek question, does God believe in capitalism? Okay, Australia's uh, economics guru, there he is, Ross Gittins, has written a very helpful primer on economics. Uh, I remember being in year 12 at school, Ross Gittins came to our school. Uh, he was this sort of little round-like gnome sort of guy with a beard and uh, he, he, he basically put the entire HSC course together in the course of one lecture. It was brilliant. Uh, like all good teachers, he begins at the beginning. Listen to how he puts it. To live, we need to consume a host of goods and services. To live well, we want to consume more goods and services than we really need. Economics, therefore, is not primarily about money, contrary to popular belief. Economics is about resources, he says. Land, including minerals in the ground and plantations, physical capital, machinery, buildings, roads, bridges and infrastructure, and labour, the three classic inputs, if you like, the economy consists of us taking those resources every day and using them to produce a whole host of goods and services which we then consume. That's what economics is about. Studying the process involved in humanity's endless round of production and consumption. Okay, Production and consumption. Now, even if there are only two people on the planet, this production and consumption would take place. Even in the future, when I believe God will fix up this mess the mess that the world is in, when everything is perfect, there will still be production and consumption. And economics is simply studying that fact of life, the fact of production and consumption. However, the second fundamental fact about economics is that we live in a world of finite resources and yet potentially infinite wants, particularly as there are more and more people. This is what economists call the economic problem, dividing finite resources into greater and greater wants. And of course the flip side of this is that when there aren't enough resources, then people's wants shrink. At least the ability to meet those wants shrink and including your basic wants for food and for shelter. 
People go hungry. Medical capacity is not available and people die. Okay, that's why in the end economics matters. It's about real human lives. Now two final concepts that are fundamental to economics uh, that I want to introduce you to, namely productivity and its flip side, specialisation. Production is taking the resources that are available and making them into the kinds of goods and services that sustain and enrich human life. Okay, that's production. Productivity, you hear that all the time in the uh, economics literature, productivity is the efficiency with which we do that. If you've got ten acres of land and that produces enough food for five people every year when you simply plant out all ten acres of land, but it produces enough food for ten people if you divide that land into three parts and rest one of its parts each year to ensure its long-term usefulness, pre-field agriculture, then what you have is an increase in productivity. You used to have your acreage, could sustain five people in your family, you had another baby, guess what? The baby died. Now you do your productivity better and you can sustain ten people in life. And so it will make sense for you to use that increased productivity. But if it turns out that you own some really good sheep and your land is actually perfect for sheep but only moderate for agriculture, that you can graze sheep and get the wool and the milk and the carcasses and sell all of that to buy enough and to get enough money to buy food for 20 people, well then if there's only 10 of you in your family, you'll buy your food and perhaps a couple of flat screen TVs to go with it. You might live it up, you might spend it in straight consumption. You'll get out of agriculture, you'll get into sheep, you'll specialise, you'll ditch plants and go with animals. Of course, instead of blowing it on flat screen TVs, what you might do is look next door and see that the land there is also good for sheep. But your neighbour doesn't get that and so you make an offer for his land. It's an offer too good to refuse and now what you've got is 20 acres of land which you can run sheep on and earn enough income for 40 people but there's still only uh, 5 people or 10 people in your family. The problem is that the 10 people in your family aren't enough to work the 20 acres of land and so you need help. Either a partner who will share with you in the profits but also share the risk of foot and mouth disease and drought and so on. Or if you don't get a partner, what you'll do is you'll get some employees, say your neighbours. So now you're producing enough for 40 people to be shared between the 10 of you and your 10 neighbours, but you don't want to work so hard anymore, so you employ 15 neighbours so you can spend three days a week at the beach or playing on your PlayStation. Now, by way of contrast, imagine that instead of owning their land, uh, the family that we started with was a family of serfs. Uh, that's, not, that's not to do with the beach, actually. Serfs, that's S-E-R-F-S, uh, kind of semi-slaves. Their consumption was entirely disconnected from their production. The lord of the manor gets everything produced by the land. The serfs get their weekly handout at a subsistence level. Suddenly, the whole dynamic changes. There's no real incentive to shoot for technological advancement like three-part agriculture, you don't get to make decisions about consumption or reinvestment, you can't hire labour, and so the whole thing falls to the ground. Now what I've tried to do there is to paint a picture of a more specific form of economic activity. That is capitalism. And to contrast it with an alternative form of economic organisation 
namely a command economy. A capitalist economy is when this business of production and consumption, which necessarily happens to sustain human life, is done in the context of a particular system, done in a particular manner. If you ask a year nine school kid, what is capitalism? They'll say something like, anyone got a definition of capitalism? The private ownership of the means... You know, not the means... See, it's a good thing I gave you this very basic start, isn't it? The private ownership of the means of production. Capitalism is the economic system which involves the private ownership of the means of production. Now, that's not bad. There's a little more to it, and... uh, We'll see that in due course. But you can see those elements in my little story. The family owns some land, a means of production. They own it. They have freedom to work it. They have freedom to make decisions about it. They do in a rational and ordered manner. Make those decisions. Weighing up various desires that they have, deciding whether to consume or to reinvest, deciding about technology, taking risks in an intelligent manner. They're able to sell their products to others. Someone wants to buy sheep. Someone wants to sell them flat-screen TVs. They're able to utilise a hired workforce and they're able to keep the profits that they earn. These are the core elements of a capitalist form of economic organisation. Freedom of markets, including the labour market, ownership of property and a rational approach to investment which inevitably leads to specialisation and unlocks the capitalist productivity of resources. And it drives upward the whole spiral of production and consumption. It drives upward what we call the standard of living. Uh, In a moment we'll drill down into those foundations further and expose what one author has called the mystery of capitalism. But for the moment I want to introduce you to two books which trace the emergence of capitalism... uh, in history. The first is this book. It's uh, by Rodney Stark, a sociologist. The Victory of Reason, How Christianity Led to Freedom, Capitalism and Western Success. Uh, Stark is a bit of a uh, stirrer. He loves to expose, expose sloppy thinking and easy assumptions. And his target in this book is the view that capitalism as the economic system of whole communities only began in the 18th or 19th century with what we call the Industrial Revolution. He shows that the cultural and intellectual foundations for capitalism reside in Christianity and nowhere else, which is why capitalism emerged in medieval Christian Europe and nowhere else, despite the fact that many other cultures have at different times been wealthier and far more technologically advanced. Uh, He uh, does a brilliant expose of uh, early northern Italian capitalism in Venice, Genoa, Florence and Milan. For example, by the end of the 13th century, Genoa had a population of 50,000, was one of the largest cities in Europe in one year, produced by sea trade alone uh, nearly 4 million Genoese pounds, which was 10 times the total annual income of the French royal treasury. One northern Italian city, 10 times the entire French treasury. It was a short-lived period of a community existing in a capitalist form of economic organisation that powered remarkable economic growth. It sustained a hugely increased population and it led to far higher standards of living for those cities for that period of time, way before the Industrial Revolution. Stark goes on to show how capitalism spread north from Italy into Holland, or what were then called the Low Countries, 
and eventually to England, but completely failed to take root in Spain and in France. Since those three foundations for capitalism, that is ownership, freedom and rational planning, were missing in France and Spain. Uh, William Bernstein, in this book, picks up uh, the more recent story. Uh, His starting point is what he calls the greatest story ever told, that is the economic birth of the modern world. He references the uh, remarkable statistical work of Scottish economist Angus Madison to show that 1820, not 1819, not 1821, and 1822 is right out, 1820 marks a stunning turning point in the economic history of the world. For the entire of the first millennium, economic growth was virtually zero, producing barely enough to sustain the very small population of the world. Okay, that's called a subsistence level. And the production and consumption capacity of the world was such that there was very limited growth, very limited improvement, and basic bare subsistence level survival. For the next 800 years, things were hardly different with very slight economic growth, allowing for very slight increases in the population. Of course, uh, this is the famous Malthusian trap. Have you heard of uh, Malthus and uh, his trap? The power of population, he said, is infinitely greater than the power of the earth to produce subsistence for men. So even when agricultural production rose, population rose along with it at an even greater rate, resulting in no net gain, meaning that human existence was doomed to near subsistence level for the first 1,800 years of the Common Era and prior to that as well, except for the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest minority of elites. Bernstein gives a description of life in those times. It's appalling, unimaginable squalor and degradation. Uh, Average lifespan of between 20 and 30 years. Unspeakable. Now, interestingly, Malthus developed his theory about the limits of population in relation to production right at the end of the 18th century, and ironically, it was in the last years of his life that for the first time in human history, populations broke free from this straitjacket. You ready? Here we go, 1820. Can you see that graph there? Get in there. Check that out. Come here. Okay, world per capita GDP, uh, inflation adjusted. Uh, The the $400 figure is the $1 a day kind of number that is used currently. A dollar a day represents abject subsistence poverty. For the first thousand years, uh, um, uh, Madison, Angus Madison, the Scottish economist, uh, put together, uh, the world went nowhere economically. Average uh, GDP remained at that subsistence level. There was a slight rise of uh, 0.0 something of 1% annual economic growth. And then suddenly, you see here, look at that, 1820 right there. You can mark it down. 1820, bang! Something happens. Uh, Another way to look at it is this graph here. Where are we going? Okay, this is the annualised per capita world GDP growth so that for 0 to 1,000 there was 0% growth. You see that? Nothing. And from 1,000 through to about 1820 we're talking minuscule growth. 
This means people died a lot. You understand why this is important? This is not just numbers or figures on a page, lines. This is about real people starving to death. And then suddenly, bang, 1820, it jumps to 2% per annum. I don't know if you remember the magic of compound interest. The magic of compound interest means at 2% uh, per year for the last 200 years, we have seen a remarkable, remarkable outcome. Uh, it's Goklani, who I spoke to you before about, who's written this uh, stunning and controversial book, The Improving State of the World. Uh, Goklani is uh, one of the leading experts uh, in the world on globalisation and environmental issues. Uh, what the Improving State of the World is a book where he pulls together uh, a remarkable and extensive research, mainly UN-based, to paint a picture of where this explosion since 1820 has taken us. Now, as we go through this, remember, again, we're talking real people's lives. Goklani's conclusions is that for billions, or findings, really, is that for billions of people around the world, these are the best of times to be alive. That on every objective measure of the human condition, be it life expectancy food availability, access to clean water, infant mortality, literacy rates or child labour, well-being and quality of life are improving around the world. From Beijing to Bratislava, more of us are living longer, healthier and more comfortable lives than at any other time in history. That makes sense, doesn't it? We saw the graph. <coughs> Fewer of us are suffering from poverty, hunger or illiteracy. Pestilence, famine, death and even war, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, are in retreat thanks to, he says, the liberating forces of capitalism and technology. Humanity has never been better fed. The daily food intake in poor countries has increased by 38% since the 1960s. 2,666 calories per person per day on average. The population of those countries has soared 83% during that time. So you put those, you've got to multiply those two things out to see the remarkable, remarkable increase in food production. Together with a 75% decline in food, uh, global food prices in real terms in the second half of the 20th century, caused by improved agricultural productivity and freer trade, fewer people than ever before are going hungry. The rate of chronic undernourishment in poor countries has halved to 17% compared to a little over a third 45 years ago. In wealthy countries, the cost of essential food has collapsed, with the price of flour, bacon, potatoes relative to income dropping by between 82 and 92% in the past century. One statistic I read was that uh, in the medieval times you would spend 90% of your income on bread just to eat. 90% of your income. There's still a long way to go, but never before in human history have so many people been liberated from extreme poverty so quickly. The number of people subsisting on a dollar a day has declined from 16% of the world population in the late 70s to just 6% today while those living on $2 a day has dropped from 39% to 18%. In 1820, 84% of the world's population lived in absolute poverty. Today, it's down to about a fifth. It's incredible. Famine and declining life expectancy are problems now limited to a small number of countries unfortunate enough to continue to suffer horrendous misgovernment and which reject capitalism and globalisation. 
the statistics go on and on and on. Life expectancy in poorer countries has improved even faster than in wealthy countries. In China, it surged from 41 years in the 1950s to 71 years today. In India, it's up from 39 years to 63 years, almost doubling the average lifespan of 2 billion people. In 1900, the average life expectancy around the world was a mere 31 years, just 100 years ago. Today, it is 67 years and rising. What does it do for a population? What does it do for the world to have people living 40, more than double lifespans? The grief that is saved from people. And so on, and so on, and so on. I don't have enough time, sadly. I'm turning pages like I have never turned pages in my life. Uh, it is remarkable, the outcome since 1820 in the world economy. And I want you to remember, these are real people. Massive improvement. Unimaginable standards of living. Jumping out from 1820. Why? Because the capitalist form of the organisation of an economy, of production and consumption, has taken root on a widespread scale. That is why. Don't cringe anymore at the word capitalism, will you? I've had to work myself into that doing this talk. Don't cringe at that word. It is responsible for the saving of hundreds and hundreds of millions of lives. And you don't want to cringe at that, do you? The point is this. We live in a world in which a quarter of the world still lives in abject poverty. That is both remarkable and tragic. It's remarkable because 200 years ago essentially all the world lived in abject poverty. And now three quarters of the world has been released from that. And the thing that's released it is a better organised and more productive economy inspiring technological advancement and increased standards of living. That's remarkable. It's tragic because the job is not yet completed. The job is not yet completed and there is still an enormous amount to be done, one quarter of the world. The question is, what is the way forward? What is to be done for those who still live hand to mouth? Hernando de Soto is President of the Institute for Liberty and Democracy in Peru. He's a Peruvian economist. He's written what has been described by many leading economists uh, as this work of seminal genius, The Mystery of Capital, Why Capitalism Triumphs in the West and Fails Everywhere Else. Time magazine has named him as one of the five leading Latin American innovators of the 20th century. The basic argument of De Soto's book is that we've misunderstood what capital is. According to De Soto, the mystery of capital is that contrary to almost everything else that's written in economic textbooks, capital is more than property or money, or the means of production. Those things are mere assets. Mere assets. But assets and capital are not the same. And this is when you need to switch on. One of the most remarkable things DeSoto does is to detail the net worth in terms of assets of developing nations. Most of the poor, he says, already possess the assets they need to make a success of capitalism. He goes on to say, and uh, his letter team, which has done what they call door-by-door uh, -door research, massive, massive amount of research, household to household, 
The value of savings alone amongst the poor is immense. Forty times all the foreign aid received throughout the world since 1945. He gives the example of Egypt. The wealth of the poor in Egypt that has been accumulated is worth 50 times as much as the sum of all direct foreign investment ever recorded there, including the Suez Canal and the Aswan Dam. In Haiti, the poorest nation in Latin America, the total assets of the poor are more than 150 times greater than all the foreign investment received since Haiti's independence from France in 1804. If the United States were to hike its foreign aid budget to the level recommended by the United Nations, that is 0.7 of 1% of national income, it would take that, the richest country on earth, 150 years to transfer to the world's poor resources equal to those they already possess. You hear his point. According to his research, the total value of the real estate owned either formally or informally by the world's poor is in fact $9.3 trillion. About twice the total circulating money supply in the United States. It's equal to the total value of all companies listed on the stock exchanges of the world's 20 most developed countries. It's more than 20 times the total direct foreign investment into all third world and former communist countries in the last decade of the 20th century. You ask the question, what's to be done? Well, Tutsoto says the first fact is not that the 25% of the world that remains in abject poverty lacks assets. The aid that we give to poor countries is nothing compared to what they already have. They have $9.3 trillion of assets. Uh, if I had time, I'd talk to you about this is why this explains the fact that foreign aid has almost zero effect on alleviating poverty. Almost a complete waste of money to give foreign aid to these countries. $2.3 trillion has been spent on foreign aid in the last five decades and still it has not managed to get 12 cent medicines to children to prevent half of all malaria deaths. It just doesn't work. $2.3 trillion has not managed to get $4 beds, bed nets to poor families or $3 to each new mother to prevent 5 million child deaths. The point is, you see, the West is not stingy. It's ineffective. It's ineffective. Well, where does its effectiveness lie? What is the difference between assets which the poor of the world have by the trillions of dollars and capital? De Soto says the difference lies in the mystery of capital. The mystery of capital is that assets have both an actual meaning and significance and a potential meaning and significance. The actual meaning of a house is that it keeps the rain out. Its potential meaning and significance is that it can be transformed into security for a loan which will enable a person to buy a small factory and therefore produce more things as well as keep the rain out. The house then has a dual function. A dual function. De Soto compares it to a lake. If you have a lake, it's a body of water, it's good for giving animals drinks. But if you can find the right mechanism, channel that water, use its height, you can turn that water's potential energy into real electricity. You just need the mechanism to do that. 
Now we know how to turn the potential of lakes into actual energy. It's less clear to how to turn the potential of assets into capital energy. And DeSoto says the single thing that turns the potential of assets into capital, the single thing, which means that the assets of the West produce uh, are transferable into capital and can produce the enormous standard, standards of living that we enjoy, but that the equally enormous assets of the poor countries of the world are incapable of being transformed into capital and increasing living standards, the single thing that does that is property rights. It's property rights that fix and give form to the potential of assets to make them available as capital. And it's not assets but property rights. That is a legal and cultural system that makes the ownership and transfer and use of assets into capital that developing countries lack. DeSoto outlines the legal framework of many of the poorest countries and shows how dead the assets of those countries are. In Peru, he tried to set up a legal garment workshop for one worker. This is just someone trying to get a job. To register the company took an entire year and cost over $1,200, 31 times the monthly minimum wage. Okay, three years' worth of income just to register the company with the government. Uh, to get authorization to build a house takes seven years. Just to get permission to build the house requiring 207 steps in 52 government offices. To formalise property in the Philippines takes between three and 25 years and 168 steps. To gain access to desert land in Egypt for construction purposes takes between six and 14 years. To buy a block of land in Haiti takes 19 years. Do you see DeSoto's argument? What makes assets useful, productive, is turning them into capital, but turning them into capital depends on a legal framework that enables the value and title of those assets to be objectively fixed and transferable. Then they become productive. And it is that lack of framework that prevents the world's poorest from joining the rest of the world in escaping the subsistence poverty that's been the human experience until the last 200 years. DeSoto says, the West was there only 200 years ago. It's not that far off. And he traces how the American and English legal systems have emerged to create this magic that allows capital to be formed from assets and become productive. What's so hard? Why don't they just do it? Well, actually, what's hard is a very great deal. You see, laws are the expression of a culture. And it's only cultures of freedom that produce laws which allow assets to be transformed into capital with all the consequent economic growth and with all the outcomes for human well-being that that brings. And freedom is a rare and precious cultural commodity. It is a rare, novel, precious thing. A freedom which respects the dignity and rights of people, rights to their person so that they can't be imprisoned, enslaved or killed, rights to the products of their person so that what they own can't be confiscated or appropriated. Freedom from tyranny is a rare and precious thing. Now in, his, in Stark's book, he says that it is Christianity that has played the key role in creating cultures of freedom. 
providing the moral and intellectual basis for experiments in political freedom. It's this freedom which underpins the legal framework that emerged particularly in England, starting with the Magna Carta, which received explicit and significant expression in John Locke, uh, whose entire thesis concerning political freedom was explicitly based on Christian doctrines of moral equity. Michael Novak, in his book The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism, which I, I don't own, so I haven't brought, uh, he goes one step further in trying to unpack this reality. He analyses what he calls a spirit of capitalism. He identifies this spirit with a steadfast refusal to impose any one vision of human order on people. Of course, this is often levelled at capitalism as a criticism, that capitalism is amoral, that it has no vision, it just lets people do their thing, that it has no centre. Novak says this is deliberate, it is a genuine pluralism in a pluralistic society which recognises the freedom and rights of others there is no one single vision of human meeting and order Novak puts it this way at its spiritual core there is an empty shrine in capitalism that shrine is left empty its emptiness therefore represents the transcendence which is approached by free consciences from a virtually infinite number of directions believer and unbeliever Selfless and selfish, frightened and bold, naive and jaded, all participate in an order whose centre is not socially imposed. Democratic capitalism respects this transcendence by limiting its own reach. What's so hard about creating property laws? What's hard is, what needs to be in place first is a culture of freedom. Well, let me sum up the argument so far and then answer the question that is our topic. What I've tried to lay out for you is the fact that one particular form of economic organisation, that is capitalism, has, in the societies that have adopted it, led to something previously unthinkable. The elimination of real material poverty as a significant problem. The mystery of capital and of capitalism is the legal framework that provides for property rights. And the philosophical and cultural underpinnings of property rights is freedom. Freedom of ownership, freedom from the tyranny of having any one social vision imposed on a society. It is Christianity which has provided this philosophical basis and that is why it is in Christian countries that capitalism has emerged. Now this is very significant. Stark says, learn the lessons of history. Listen to how he puts it. It seems doubtful that an effective modern economy can be created without adopting capitalism, as was demonstrated by the failure of the command economies of the Soviet Union and China. The Soviets could get rockets into orbit, but they couldn't reliably get onions to Moscow. As for China, millions had to die to prove that collectivised agriculture is unproductive. Today, both Russia and China now seek to build capitalist economies. But if you follow the argument, you'll understand Stark's next point, it remains to be seen whether either nation can provide freedom without which effective capitalism is impossible. Indeed, for want of both freedom and capitalism, Stark says Islamic nations remain in semi-feudalism, incapable of manufacturing most of the items that they use in daily life. Then, of course, he asks the big question. But if modernisation still requires capitalism and freedom, what about Christianity? In other words... Since it's Christianity that's provided the foundations for freedom and therefore capitalism, is it possible to have the edifice without the foundations? 
and he ends his book by quoting one of the leading scholars from China's premier academic research institute, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, in Beijing in 2002. Listen to this quote. One of the things that we were asked to look into was what accounted for the success, in fact the preeminence of the West all over the world. We studied everything we could from the historical, political, economic and cultural perspective. At first we thought it was because you had more powerful guns than we had. Then we thought it was because you had the best political system. Next we focused on your economic system, but in the past 20 years we've realised that the heart of your culture is your religion, Christianity. That is why the West is so powerful. The Christian moral foundation of social and cultural life was what made possible the emergence of capitalism and then the successful transition to democratic politics. We don't have any doubts about this. Well, does God believe in capitalism? What's interesting about the question, of course, is that it opens up different ways that we use the phrase believing. If you mean, does God believe that capitalism exists, well, then the question is trivial. Of course, God believes that capitalism exists, but that hardly says anything important. Uh, pretty much in the same way as someone saying that they believe God exists is not very important because it's obvious. 99% of human beings throughout history have done that. Now, the issue that we're getting at with this question is, does God believe in capitalism in the sense that is God loyal to capitalism? Does God commit himself to capitalism? Is it a Christian form of an economy? Now, that's a far more interesting question. Because if God is, then you should be too. I think the emphatic answer must be no, along with a softly spoken maybe. First, the emphatic no, the fact is that capitalism is an artefact of creation. It's just a human construction and as such stands under the judgment and scrutiny of God. God stands over his creation in judgment and in salvation. What's more, we saw that uh, economic activity in this world is a consequence of scarcity. But the future, uh, so the economic activity, particularly of capitalism, is a consequence of scarcity, but the future that God has planned for his world is one of utterly profligate abundance. But second, it's worth noting that capitalism is a lot less evil than some other forms of economic organisation. If Goklani's figures and DeSoto's analysis are correct, it is possible that via capitalism more and more countries can eliminate real material poverty as a significant problem in their societies. And that, that is of interest to God. You see, he cares for people. It grieves him to see people starve. The Apostle Paul wrote to one of uh, his friends, uh, his protege, Timothy, in this way. Uh, he urges us to pray for political authorities in our areas so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So pragmatically, yes, God, I think, finds capitalism useful. It's also true to say, I think, that capitalism is a form of economic activity that most aligns and least offends against human nature that God, the way God has created it and least attempts to replace God at the centre of human life. It respects human nature by giving fundamental expression to the freedom that we have as persons. So, maybe, 
Maybe. But God doesn't really believe in capitalism as a solution to the world's problems. God believes in Jesus as a solution to the world's problems. Not just a band-aid kind of solution, a temporary fix until things inevitably decline, like every other solution that we can come up with. We can't come up with a solution to death. It gets us all, but Jesus has got one. It's called resurrection. It's coming to a church near you this Sunday. No, God doesn't believe in capitalism. He believes in Jesus. But as I say, in my judgment, he finds capitalism a useful temporary measure, a lesser of evils when it comes to feeding people and helping them live longer and having fewer babies die and for people to live healthier lives. You see, that's where this finds relevance to you. In a sense, it's all hypothetical, frankly. You live a peaceable and dignified life precisely because you're the beneficiary of the most productive economic engine in the history of the world. You're amongst the healthiest, best-educated, longest-lived, wealthiest, safest, freest 0.001 of 1% of all people in human existence. Never forget that, will you? As you sip your latte this afternoon, as you listen to your iPod, as you decide whether to eat chicken or beef from the freezer, because that's where they grow, right? As you sleep in a warm bed under manufactured sheets, having flushed your toilet and brushed your teeth with water you got from a tap by turning a knob, treated with fluoride to make sure your teeth don't rot. As you do all of that, no one, no one has less excuse than you for not investigating the deeper matters of life, for not coming to a knowledge of salvation, as Paul put it to Timothy. No one has less excuse. Ask about meaning. Ask about death. Ask about eternity. Ask about God. And this weekend, instead of just bludging on Friday, do something useful. Get yourself to church. Understand the person who lies at the centre. Jesus. His death and his resurrection. The turning point of all history.